I think grown men are going to cry. I think people are going to fall to their knees and start kissing the ground. Now, what could this person be referring to? Uh, the return of Christ? <laughs> the end of a world war? The revealing of our next new season at Lifehouse? Welcome to The Dramatic Difference, a program about story, stage, and the author of creativity. I'm your host, Wayne Scott, founder and president of Lifehouse Productions. On today's episode, we're going to be covering a number of topics, ranging from an event that may make grown men cry, to a deceptively simple question such as, is there such a thing as Christian theater? Well, as you may already know, there have been times in history where the church has greatly valued the dramatic arts, and other times when it's been held with great suspicion. So at this point, we're going to uh, take a step back and briefly consider in our first segment how the church and theater have gotten along over the centuries, and uh, not very well always. For example, why would a group of Christians shut down the Globe Theater and ban all performances? If we had unlimited time, I'd bring you back to the Old Testament to show you where God calls his prophets, such as Hosea, to dramatically act out or live out scenes to illustrate a spiritual truth that God is trying to teach them. But we don't have that time, so I'll need to leave that for later and move past the Greco-Roman era all the way to Christianized Europe during the medieval ages. And here we're going to look at drama in the church. In the early Middle Ages, the church would often perform drama connected to the worship services. And drama was especially powerful in communicating the biblical story because the Bible was not in a language most people could understand. But just about everyone, even children, could understand drama. At first, the dramas took place in monasteries, but then they moved into cathedrals. And most of these plays centered around New Testament biblical events, such as Easter and Christmas. To help the audience grasp where a scene took place, structures were built, and these were called mansions, believe it or not. Yes, mansions. And these represented different locations. They were sort of like mini-sets. These locations could range from Galilee to paradise to hell. And these mansions, or sets, would sit in between the columns in the cathedral, and the actors would perform in front of them, enabling them to move easily from Galilee to hell in a few moments if they wanted to. Then, of course, drama moved outside of the church. Eventually, between 1400 and 1550, these plays moved outside the monasteries and cathedrals, and outside of church control. And when that happened, the content of the dramas inevitably changed. Some of them kept a religious identity, such as the so-called morality play. And the best-known play of this sort is called Everyman, an allegory which begins with a meeting with death. Everyman journeys through life facing betrayal from kindred, goods, and fellowship. The only companion who stays with Everyman to the grave is Good Deeds, in some ways, it reminds me very much of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which was a landmark and would be written about 180 years later. Then we're jumping ahead to drama around the time of the Reformation. So if we were to skip about 180 years later to the time of Pilgrim's Progress, we'd have passed through the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation, which certainly affected the way drama was being performed. As you can imagine, the doctrinal disagreements of the day started uh, to play a heavy role in the content of plays themselves. While one play might be sympathetic to Catholicism, the other might be more sympathetic to Protestantism. Now, examining drama during the Puritan era is a whole other matter. If we were to take a closer look at the 1600s, we would be familiar with the great poet William Shakespeare. Who hasn't heard of Shakespeare, right? It was Shakespeare who wrote, All the world was a stage, and all people were players. But when the Puritans came to leadership in England, we might say they disagreed with Shakespeare's sentiment. 
1642, Parliament, under Puritan leadership, closed the Globe Theater and forbid performances. For 18 years, between 1642 and 1660, the Puritans brought all theatrical activity to a complete halt. Why was that? Well, some of the reasons were better than others, but one of the main reasons was they felt that the content of the plays was immoral and debased. And they do have a point, of course. If we're honest, even Shakespeare's greatest dramatic works are dark, violent, and adult-themed. The Puritans were desperately fighting to see the church marked once again by holiness, something lost in large part during the medieval age. In addition, this wasn't the first time the church had voiced grave concern with the theater and all the immorality it represented. So if we're honest, there have been some pretty unsavory characters uh, running around theaters. <laughs> and that continues to this day, I'm sorry to say, but not all theaters, of course. Nevertheless, for centuries, the church would continue to wrestle with what to do with the theater. But as for today, I sense that the church feels far more comfortable with the notion of utilizing drama in the worship service. I have the privilege of being invited to various churches in Southern California to speak, and many of them are familiar with Lifehouse Theater and some of the work we try to do because they know our mission is to reclaim the arts for Christ, to, to do wholesome theater, to tell good stories well in the same way that Jesus told parables, those all-important stories that he used to illustrate truth. And uh, when people sample Lifehouse Theater, particularly those who aren't sure what we are, who might imagine that we're practicing voodoo or human sacrifices or who knows what they're worried about what we do, and then the others who might worry that we're going to throw a 40-pound family Bible at them, they realize that, oh no, this is, uh, this is quite amazing. We, we're better than they might expect in terms of the quality, hopefully, and we have uh, good messages that hopefully leave you feeling better when you leave than when you came in. And most often, of course, those are rooted in uh, God's Word, Scripture. So that's really what we're about. And in that sense, I suppose uh, we are making some advancements in the arts for good. We're going to turn to our next uh, segment, which is on culture. A few weeks ago, I read a headline to an article that arrested my attention, as well as the attention of our staff here. The article said, I think grown men are going to cry. This was a direct quote from someone. So let me read that quote to you. I think grown men are going to cry. I think people are going to fall to their knees and start kissing the ground. Now, what could this person be referring to? Uh, the return of Christ? <laughs> the end of a world war? The revealing of our next new season at Lifehouse? Uh, well, no, although that last one may come the closest. Uh, but I gave my staff a moment to guess the answer, and no one was even close. In fact, I wouldn't have believed it myself, except I had already read the article. So when I told them what this quote was referring to, they let out a little groan. This quote was from Disney Imagineer Margaret Kerrison describing the newest Disney theme park, Star Wars Galaxy Edge. She said, I think grown men are going to cry. I think people are going to fall to their knees and start kissing the ground. All right. Well, I have no doubt about this. George Lucas is brilliant and very, very rich. <laughs> and of course, I don't think it would bother Lucas one bit that my staff groaned when I revealed this. He's undoubtedly heard far worse over the many, many years he has been a top uh, influence and talent in Hollywood. George Lucas made enough films ranging from American Graffiti to Star Wars to Indiana Jones to have a thick skin when it comes to critics. For example, some critics applauded Lucas for The Empire Strikes Back, because it was darker and more adult in content than the first Star Wars film. 
while others criticized him for Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, because it wasn't serious enough. Lucas didn't really care what the critic thought, and that's probably wise. A passionate artist shouldn't either. Not only did he know what he wanted, but he also knew what his audiences wanted. My films, explained Lucas, and I'm quoting, my films are closer to amusement park rides than to a play or a novel. You get in line for a second ride. So I don't think Lucas was surprised to find his stories turned into theme parks. And honestly, I don't think there's anything wrong with watching Star Wars in context or enjoying the Star Wars theme park. And if you have an opportunity to visit the Millennium Falcon or build your own lightsabers, that sounds great. Go, to, go do that. Uh, and I, I would enjoy that myself. But there's something deeper going on here. When I hear that something's going to make people fall to their knees and start kissing the ground, I think of events that will change humanity drastically. So I'm going to make a leap here, but it reminds me of man's desire to not only make a utopia out of a theme park, but also a utopia out of our world. There's a long history of those kinds of attempts. Now, a utopia is an imagined place where everything is perfect, heaven on earth. And throughout history, men and women have tried to bring a utopia to earth through politics, for example. And, of course, that almost always results in major dystopia. But history repeats itself, and new generations continue to think that they can bring a utopia to earth. I find that it's our poets or our storytellers who best remind us that man-made utopias will always result in man-caused dystopias. And if you don't believe me, read George Orwell's 1984 or his novel Animal Farm or Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 or, for that matter, many episodes of The Twilight Zone. It's not that man's utopias are not bold enough. They're very bold, so bold that they always overlook the single factor that turns the utopia into dystopia. And that's man himself. No social program or economic stimulus can fix man's sinful heart. In fact, I had quite a career in politics and government myself, starting out as a poli-sci major at UC Riverside. And I had an opportunity to work at the state capitol for a number of years. And I felt like a uh, sort of a small cog in a giant machine after a while. And it was hard to see how we were making a difference in people's lives. There were a lot of egos. There were a lot of agendas. And often uh, there was not a lot of uh, accomplishment. It was a lot of gridlock because everyone wanted their, their way. And one of my favorite definitions of politics is not only who gets what, when, where, and how, but it's also called the pursuit of incompatible goals. And that's a very apt description of man's attempts to create a utopia, the pursuit of incompatible goals. The only kingdom that can bring true peace, joy, justice, and prosperity, or let me phrase it this way, the only kingdom that I think is truly worth people falling to their knees and kissing the ground over will be the kingdom that God brings through Christ. And I left politics because I felt the battle, the real battle, was in the hearts and minds of individuals, not in uh, particularly government and institutions that would uh, hopefully uh, bring a utopia on earth. Not that that's the aim of all politicians or that uh, we can naively think that's ever going to be accomplished. There's a certain place for government, of course, and we certainly want to see people have a safety net who are in dire need. But the real battle for eternal destiny is in the hearts and minds of individuals. So until uh, Christ returns, the failed utopias hopefully will remind you of the only one who can truly bring heaven to earth, and that's God himself. Well, suffering causes many to dream up utopias, which leads to our next segment. We're going to speak about David, who suffered much on this earth. 
He was a man after God's own heart, the scriptures tell us. So he's worth looking at. But even so, he did go through a lot of difficulty. In one particular psalm, after reflecting on his enemies, David reminds himself that his time here on earth is temporary. For I am a sojourner with you, writes David, a guest like all my fathers. That is a great way of looking at life, being a sojourner. We are residents, but we're not true citizens. We're a guest like all of those who've gone before us. David's perspective is wonderful. So as we go into our third segment, which we call In Christ, let's take a look at what David has to say. In conversations, I often find myself referring back to Psalm 39, in which David asked the Lord to, quote, make me know my end. Earlier, we spoke of the medieval ages, which was a difficult time to live in. Due to the harsh conditions, people lived fewer years than now. They were dying more frequently in childbirth and more unexpectedly and prematurely from diseases. People had death and the afterlife on their mind much more often than our current generation does. We've sort of managed through medical technology and scientific breakthroughs to sort of postpone the inevitable in our minds. And for all the good that modern technology and progress has done for us, we're living longer, healthier, and more uh, distracted lives. In other words, we're not focusing on those important things. We haven't settled in our minds the, uh, the true destination of where we will be going. We uh, sort of put that off. And I'm afraid that the average person today thinks far less about their end than other generations did. And so David's words are timely for us. I'd like to read from Psalm 39, verses 1 through 4. David writes, O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. This is echoed in Moses' Psalm number 90, in which he asked the Lord, Teach me to number my days acknowledging that our days are so, so fleeting. There's been a lot written about these psalms, and David's in particular. The great French reformer John Calvin had this to say, It was the pangs of sorrow which forced David to give utterance to these complaints, but it is to be observed that it is chiefly when men are sore oppressed by adversity that they are made to feel their nothingness in the sight of God. Another way of putting this is how C.S. Lewis put it. He said, pain is God's megaphone. And that is actually a line from the play Shadowlands, a wonderful production that we have staged here at Lifehouse. When pain is God's megaphone, yes, he gets your attention. And when we are sore oppressed, as Calvin put it, sore oppressed by adversity, we do feel our, our humble nothingness in the sight of God. And more often than not, we will consider turning to him. Calvin goes on to say that prosperity so intoxicates men that, forgetful of their condition and sunk in insensibility, they dream of an immortal state on earth. It is very profitable for us to know our own frailty, but we must beware lest, on account of that, we fall into such a state of sorrow as may lead us to murmur and repine. In other words, to just sort of complain and do nothing. Calvin says, David speaks truly and wisely in declaring that man, even when he seems to have risen to the highest state of greatness, is only like the bubble which rises upon the water, blown up by the wind. But he is in fault when he takes occasion from this to complain of God. Well, as one who's done a lot of complaining to God, I look back 
and I can look back at journal entries where I have been lamenting and complaining. And it is amazing to me that I had dare complain to the God who created me. But uh, we do that. And who are we to do that? I am always amazed when I read about the Israelites complaining. Here they've seen miracle after miracle right in their own midst, right in front of their very eyes, and they still end up doubting and complaining to God and about God. And we, we labor and we strive here on earth. In Eugene Peterson's translation of the Bible, The Message, he has a passage in Ecclesiastes that he heads a salary of smoke. And the way he translates it, Solomon warns us that we're basically all striving for a salary that is really smoke. I wish I could pay my staff here a salary in smoke. It would sure make fundraising a lot easier, but that's not going to be very meaningful. And likewise, so many of our pursuits are not meaningful either. Matthew Henry reminds us that when we look upon death as a thing at a distance, we are tempted to adjourn the necessary preparations for it. But when we consider how short life is, we shall see ourselves concerned to do what our hand finds to do, not only with all of our might, but with all possible expedition. So we, we would do well to realize that so much that we're striving for is really just smoke. And as Solomon put it, it can be meaningless. It can be vanity. And if we would join with Moses and David in teaching us, asking God to teach us to number our days, we would be much better off so that we could use the time more profitably, more meaningfully, in a way that would not only please God, but would bring us fulfillment of the desires of our hearts that he has planted in them. And I encourage all of us to join together in seeking to do just that. Well, now it's time to hear from our sponsor, Lifehouse Theater on the Air. And I'm excited to share with you a clip from Job, a Modern Man. And this dramatic production poses the question, what if the biblical Job lived today? What if he lived in our modern world as a successful executive with a loving family, loyal friends, and the best life has to offer? And as in the scriptural story, what if he lost it all in a flash? This gripping parallel story of Job is set in contemporary times and explores the age-old question, where is God in the midst of trouble and tragedy? This has been called the Achilles heel of Christianity. Let's uh, listen now to a short clip for you to enjoy. Why do seemingly tragic events happen in the lives of seemingly good people? And where is God during troubling times? These are some of the key questions raised in the biblical book of Job. In considering these issues, the question arises, what if Job lived today in modern times? What if he were part of our world, living among us? In our modern parallel tale based on the book of Job, we take a look at how his life's events might unfold in today's world. As we follow Job's story in the familiar context of our contemporary times, perhaps we may gain a better understanding of our own life's journey, as well as further insights into the God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Lifehouse Theater on the Air presents Job, a Modern Man. Where have I been? Wandering to and fro, dabbling in the Middle East, Cambodia, North Korea, and America for kicks. But really, it's, it's not even a challenge there anymore. 
Yes, I've seen Job. <laughs> he, he still praises you, though it is to be expected. I mean, if a man still has his health, has he really lost everything? Yes, I'm sure you're right. He would still praise you if... But then again, can you really be certain? I forgot. You you know all things. But I, I wonder, I mean, could I strike him down with something just to prove me wrong again? It has been known to happen. Ah. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that snippet from this biblical story. If you're interested in this radio drama, you can purchase this volume and many more at theateronthear.com. That's theateronthear.com, as well as from amazon.com and iTunes. Now it's time for us to move to our final segment of the day, From You. I'd like to talk for a moment about uh, Christian theater, or Christians in theater, and to talk a little bit about the Lambs Players Theater in Coronado, California. Here in Southern California, the Lambs Players Theater is a fantastic destination, and Coronado Island is beautiful near San Diego. And I have visited this theater many times, and in fact, before Lifehouse even began, I thought there would be a lot to learn from the way they do things at Lambs. And if you want to see high-caliber, high-quality theater done by people of faith, Lambs Players is the place to go in Southern California. Now, even though the Lambs Players grew out of a drama class in a Christian college, Lambs does not identify themselves as a Christian theater. Instead, they refer to themselves as a nonprofit theater that simply focuses on telling good stories well, which is very noble in itself. Robert Smith, the producing artistic director, a man that I've had the pleasure of meeting, he explains it this way in a blog article on the theater's website. He says, The nonprofit theater is an area where complex ideas and experiences may still be explored where our lives and our choices as individuals and as a community can be considered. At times, that exploration, that consideration, may be startling, searing, even painful. But for us, it always ends with hope, and that hope is our worldview. He goes on to say, However, we are not a church. We are not and have never called ourselves a Christian theater. Indeed, he says, I'm not quite sure what that would be. A theater only for Christians? A theater of only religious plays? A safe theater? As C.S. Lewis wrote, Christian art can exist only in the way that Christian cooking exists. What is Christian cooking? Smith says, the core of our company are people of faith who are committed to making good theater. My focus of quoting Smith is not to now contradict him by any means, but to use his points as a springboard for an important question. In this passage, Smith says that he's not sure what a Christian theater would be, and then he quotes C.S. Lewis to further his point. I think what Smith is trying to say is that their faith element doesn't put them in a separate category. You have regular theater over here and then some sort of Christian theater over there, just like we have Netflix, the regular media platform, and then Pureflix, the Christian version. Smith is trying to say that attaching the adjective Christian to theater may be more confusing than helpful. Smith wants Lamb's Theater to be known as a theater first, a place that tells great stories infused with hope. 
and as I say, that is truly noble. I see nothing wrong with their choice to brand themselves in this way. It does, however, beg the question for me, are we ever justified in calling a theater Christian? To Lewis's point, Christian art can exist only in the way that Christian cooking exists. It does seem difficult to conceive what Christian cooking would be, or for that matter, Christian plumbing or Christian architecture, although uh, we might be able to identify examples of architecture influenced by uh, Christianity. But placing Christian before these occupations begs more questions than it answers. But what about an occupation such as education? What if we put an adjective in front of that? Now we're making some progress. I think we would agree we could be familiar with what Christian education means, as well as secular education, or public education, or liberal arts education. And I've been involved with both public education and Christian education, and and I can discern some differences, and those can be enumerated. And in these cases, the modifier tells us the perspective or philosophy that the education is being taught from. We can use this thinking to bring us right back to the arts. But instead of using the modifier Christian, let's use a different one. Let's use one we hear in everyday conversation. Feminism. Sure, it may be difficult to conceive of what distinguishes a feminist sculptor from all other sculptors, but it's pretty easy for me to wrap my mind around a feminist author or feminist filmmaker. We can just do a Google search for feminist novelist and feminist filmmaker, and you'll quickly find these terms have meaning in our culture. What they mean is that the work of writing a novel or producing a film was or will be done from the perspective or philosophy of a feminist. It's easier for us to conceive of a feminist filmmaker than a feminist sculptor because filmmaking deals far more explicitly in words and values and beliefs than sculpting does. So getting back to Lewis's point, perhaps this is why it's hard to conceive of a Christian meal and much easier to conceive of a Christian education. For example, a recipe on how to make a pizza doesn't tell me much about the cook's perspective on the world, but a lesson plan on the question, what is man, will tell me plenty about the teacher's worldview. Education deals far more explicitly with words, values, and beliefs than cooking does. So all of this leads me back to our attempt to understand what Christian theater might be. So in short, I think Christian theater is theater produced from a Christian perspective. Now that doesn't mean every drama or musical will contain references to Jesus or the Bible. But it does mean that the productions are consistent with the perspective on the world that Christianity offers. And that doesn't mean it will overlook pain and suffering because the Christian worldview has much to say about that topic. And it has much to say about human dignity and marriage and money and sexuality and hope. And it doesn't mean that all the endings will necessarily be happy because in this life they aren't always. But Christianity has a lot to say about that and that's its own perspective. And I don't shy away from the term Christian theater and I don't mind if People refer to Lifehouse as the Christian theater or a faith-based theater or a place where Christians do theater. I think there's validity to all of that. And I, I am sorry, and I do regret, that it can mean other things to other people. Going back to my earlier comments about the perception that maybe we heave 40-pound family Bibles at people or there's some sort of voodoo uh, mystery about it. Uh, and, of course, there are Christians who sort of look down on it because drama might be beneath them in some way. And there are folks who uh, just don't think that a Christian group of people can do theater well or that somehow it will have a, a message that we're trying to sneak in to proselytize. And that kind of assumption completely ignores the fact that all art has a message. And no matter what worldview you're getting, you're getting a worldview, no matter what film or television program or uh, magazine or novel you're reading. There is a perspective there, 
And somehow the fact that it's a Christian perspective doesn't mean that it's less of a perspective or not worthy of consideration. But somehow that's how it's compartmentalized in many people's minds. I don't shy away from the term for those reasons. And thus, in this sense, I think we might speak about Christian theater. This wraps up our time on The Dramatic Difference. And I want to thank you for joining me today. This was a little more cerebral, hopefully educational edition. If you've enjoyed today's episode, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a rating. If you really like what you hear, the best thing you can do to help us is to share it with your friends. That's it for today. I'm Wayne Scott for The Dramatic Difference, and I look forward to being with you next time. God bless. Mm -hmm.